The book of the prophet Jonah is a little book. It's only about 1,400 words, shorter than this sermon will be. And in Hebrew scriptures, it's not like any of the other prophets that are in there. Perhaps thinking this more of a legend or an enacted parable is closer to the writer's craft. Most of all, it's a satire. Think divine comedy with a message for us all today. Briefly, God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is the largest city in Assyria whose pagan sinfulness was legendary, as was its cruelty. Jonah was to go there and to preach repentance, or I quote from scripture, they would be no more. Without reply, Jonah hires a boat to go to Tarshish, the opposite end, the farthest spot on earth he could possibly go away from Nineveh. Obviously, he's not doing what God asks. While en route, the seas rage and it threatens all life on board the boat. In a state of desperation, Jonah confessed that he worships God, who is the creator of sea and dry land and everything in it. And oh, by the way, he's running away from this God because he doesn't want to do what he tells him. So Jonah is thrown overboard. Rather than let him drown, God appoints a big fish to swallow him. There is no whale in Jonah. While lingering in the belly for three days, Jonah prays since Jonah knows that it's God alone who can save him. Jonah's prayers are answered and the fish vomits him on to dry land. Again, God's prophetic word comes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh, and this time he does. Despite only preaching to one-third of the great sinful city, Jonah is an immediate and raging success. All the Ninevites, from king to cow, put on sackcloth and ashes, and they fast, and they repent from their wicked ways. Jonah becomes the only prophet in Hebrew scriptures to witness to his own success. But the story doesn't end there. In fact, this is where our reading picks up. Listen for the climax as I read the final verses of Jonah. When God saw what they did, how the Ninevites turned from their evil ways, God changed God's mind about the calamity he said he would bring upon them, and God did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish from the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to repent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? And then Jonah went out of the city and sat down to the east side of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come over Jonah to give shade to his head, to save him from discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when came up dawn the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. And the sun rose, and God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and you did not grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. 
And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 souls who do not know their right hand from the left, and so many animals? Here ends our reading. Please pray with me. Eternal God, from whom we come into this world and to whom we will all return, we humble ourselves before you. Open our hearts and minds to hear your word in these ancient words. And through this story of struggle, may we feel your fierce claim and feel your abiding love for all of our lives. Amen. When Michelangelo was asked to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, historians believe he chose one of the most prominent figures. And into this, he painted the reluctant Jonah in a reclining position as the focal point and as his own self-portrait. When we read Jonah in our recent Bible read-along, many of us, including me, identified with Jonah. We seem to know what it means to run away from a task we think is either too hard or just too far-fetched. It's just not possible. One day I will tell you about my month-long Jonah moment. The storyteller of Jonah created every opportunity for us to see our reflection in Jonah. And by doing so, when God confronts Jonah, God is questioning us. As much as we might identify with being disobedient to God's call in the beginning of the story, though, not many of us will welcome imagining ourselves as a petulant child sulking, sitting on a hill, and wishing to die. But sometimes that is how we behave. Nor do we ever want God's fierceness facing us with, is it right for you to be angry? Now I said Jonah is the most successful prophet ever. People did what he asked. All of God's creatures, men and women, cattle and sheep, even the king within Nineveh changed their hearts and minds when they heard Jonah speak of God's love. And yet Jonah flees from the city to get a prime view up on the hill to watch them burn because that's what he thought God planned to do to those sinning people. Although Jonah had confessed throughout the story that God was, I quote, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing, Jonah didn't think it was right for the sinful city to get such a large portion of God's grace, and Jonah wanted them to perish. God calls him on it. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah must have known what Machiavelli would write centuries later, that it is better to be feared than loved. Teach those Ninevites and everyone else who is not part of the in-group, and they can learn to follow the straight and narrow. Jonah's anger may have come from thinking the Ninevites don't deserve God's love. Jonah knows they're kind, and even if they're acting, they're repentant. They can't be trusted. And even if God created them, and even if God, if Jonah knows that God is abounding in steadfast love, for God to pour out so much mercy to so many sinners will create a morally lax society, and we can't stand for it. Or Jonah might have thought it's just not fair. The story of the prodigal son has an older son fuming that it was not fair for love and mercy to be showered upon his sinful younger brother. Jonah is the quintessential human being, the classic model of our human species, where there is a flaw in his character, one that cannot be erased on his own. 
It's his desire to control his own destiny and to determine who should and who should not be punished. Or maybe Jonah is just a selfish child. He sits on a hill all by himself, but yet Jonah had disobeyed God so many times and received forgiveness. It was just days ago that God sent a big fish to save him from drowning, even though Jonah had blatantly disobeyed God. Perhaps Jonah thought there just wasn't enough mercy to go around and he was gonna do a lot more sinning and needed it himself. We don't know why Jonah is angry, but is, is it right for him to be angry is what God wants to know. Divine mercy is beyond our grasp, particularly when we don't try to offer human mercy to friends and neighbors or family, let alone strangers. This ancient story is told time and time again throughout all three great monotheistic religions, including Islam, in which it indicts us when our actions don't conform with our professed beliefs. God is merciful and abounding in love. And most of all, we don't get to decide who receives God's mercy and goodness. God does. Shortly before his death in 1631, the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, John Donne, wrote the following meditation. The church is Catholic universal and so are all her actions. All that she does belongs to all. When she baptizes a child, that action concerns me, for that child is thereby connected to that head which is my head too, and engrafted into the body whereof I am a member. And when she buries a man, that action concerns me. All mankind is of one author and is of one volume. When we profess to live as followers of Christ, we are ingrafted into the body of Christ, as Dunn describes, and we are connected each to the other and to God. Now, we just delighted in welcoming new life into this church universal by welcoming Anderson Jetty in the sacrament of baptism. And we also lit a candle for each death this past week in Orlando, mourning senseless gun violence. Ingrafted into the body, into the beginnings and the endings of these souls, claims us, and it binds us as well in each of the days in between the beginning and the end. Now, the sacrament of baptism was not a private affair between Anderson and God, but it required his family and all of the congregation to participate from a liturgy that has been handed down since the time of Christ. Standing before God, Everyone made a lifelong commitment to support the child and family, to pray for them, and to speak words, and to live in a way that all children might come to know the love of God. We have an eternal connection with everyone here through baptism, and we all receive God's grace made known through Jesus Christ. And it was Jesus Christ who came to love and heal all the divisions in our world. John Donne's meditation continues. No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for who the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And so secure yourself by making recourse to God, our only security. 
It was and is customary for a church in England to ring the bell upon the news of someone's death. It honors the one whose time on earth has ended, and it reminds those of us who hear it that that same death that came for him will come for you and me at some time. Whether we light candles or ring bells, much of our nation experienced a visceral response this week to those who died, either through a personal remembrance of Orlando or compassion with those who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Very likely this tragedy renewed the grief and the anger and the fear felt from one of the other mass shootings we've survived, or any shooting, regardless of the number of dead or wounded. Just a year ago, we lit nine candles commemorating the deaths at Mother Emanuel AME. It was such a tragedy, but more so that it occurred in a sanctuary which by definition is to be a safe place. Most of the victims in Orlando were gay, Latino men of color, members of a local LBGTQ community that had long found refuge and safety in a gay bar. For many, this was more than just a nightclub. For in a society in which sexual identity has been a means by which to exclude and condemn, many gays will tell you that a bar or a nightclub was the first place where they could be open and honest, and who God created them to be. It was a place where they could feel loved and accepted. Pulse nightclub was, for many of them, a sanctuary. And like the African-Americans killed in Charleston, those killed in Orlando were killed in their own sanctuary. Tragically, Islam was again a victim in this shooting, maligned by the killer, and it's now fueling those who will use this to further discriminate against Muslims. I know some will say it's not appropriate at Kenilworth Union Church or from any pulpit to speak about gun violence or gays. But without speaking honestly, free from fear and speaking with love, we cannot begin to heal the pain in our homes, our church, or our community. Some will say it's not appropriate for us to speak of the common bond of faith we have with Islam. Yet we rise from the same Abrahamic foundation and we have so much in common with Muslims. This past week, over 200 Muslim scholars, clerics, and national leaders crafted a statement in response to the Orlando tragedy condemning the actions of one lone perpetrator. They begin with, we unequivocally say that such an act of hate-fueled hate violence has no place in any faith, including Islam. And towards the end of the statement, they continue more fully. We will not allow the extremists to define us, to mold us in their benighted image, or sow the seeds of discord amongst us. We are one people, so let us all, in good conscience and human solidarity, reject this extremist narrative and assert our shared humanity and mutual respect for the sanctity of all human life. In grief, but not giving away to fear, people have been breaching the established norms. Last Sunday, as lines stretched around blocks of those waiting to give blood, Several Chick-fil-A stores opened. It's significant in these Chick-fil-A stores because they were defying a company ban against working on Sundays. They worked on Sundays and they served food. Many of them stores served it free of charge. 
But more than just the food and more than just working on Sunday, they were defying a company tradition. You may recall in 2012, the son of the company's founder set off a fury in the LBGTQ community and with others for its stance against marriage equality. But the employees ignored that. They ignored everything. They were there to feed and care for the other. Courage continues to spread. In Washington, D.C., a group of Orthodox Jews decided to move from their sanctuary to a gay bar as an act of solidarity. Here are portions of a reflection written by that rabbi. I had not been to a bar in more than 20 years, and I had never been to a gay bar. Someone in the congregation told me about a bar called The Fireplace, so I announced that as our destination. Afterward, I found out it was a predominantly frequented by gay African Americans. Approximately a dozen of us wearing yarmulkes went down. We didn't know what to expect. As we gathered outside, we saw one large drunk man talking loudly and wildly, and I wondered if this was the right place. Then my mother, who was with me, went up to a man who was standing at the side of the building, and she told him who we were and why we were there. He broke down in tears, and he told us his cousin was killed at Pulse, and he embraced us, and he invited us into the fireplace. We didn't know what to expect, but it turned out that we had so much in common. We met everyone in the bar. One of the patrons told me that his stepchildren had actually bar mitzvahed in our congregation. Another one asked me for my card so that his church could come and visit. The bartender shut off all the music in the room and the crowd became silent as we offered words of prayer and healing. And after that, one of our congregants bought a round of beer for the whole bar. Everyone embraced each other. It was powerful, moving, real, and raw. Today, in light of the violence and the divisions we've created, when asked, is it right for you to be angry? We can say, yes, it's right for us to be angry. This is Father's Day, and every one of those who died has a father who grieves deeply. And some who died were fathers themselves and have children who will not have their presence as they grow up. Yes, yes, we're angry. And we can imagine that God, as our Heavenly Father, must also be angry and grieving and frustrated with all God's children. Yes, we're angry that so many divisions have been erected between people. So many rules exist which do more to extinguish life than preserve it. And so many are dying and we haven't done anything to stop it. Jonah got a lesson about the power of divine mercy and abundant love when he saw the Ninevites, the most stubborn and self-centered people. They were able to change and love God and God rejoiced in life. But rather than participate, Jonah chose to be alone. And when that was not enough, he realized preserving his self-righteousness was possible only by dying. But death and loneliness is not what God wants. God's love is ferocious and will chase after us even to the corners of the earth or if we try to hide in the belly of a fish. God is relentless and will chase us down until we understand that love is stronger than hate. God's love will bind us, all these islands together, into one great land. It's only weapons that divide, but love is the one thing that's capable of winning. Please pray with me. 
Our God, our help in ages past, use us to restore the hope for the future. Help us to show in our lives what we proclaim with our lips. Good is stronger than evil. Love is stronger than hate. Light is stronger than darkness. And hope is stronger than despair. Amen.